You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at the truth-telling headquarters of Conservative Review, powered by our friends at Westwood One's Podcast Network. And it is early Thursday, May 24th, creeping towards another holiday weekend. Um, So much to cover Got a lots of good and maybe some negative feedback from last podcast. I know I was very down. Um, I was just also really out of energy, um, just emotionally sapped. I'm feeling a little invigorated, um, not because the problems we discussed last time, the irremediable nature of the conservative professional movement is is not true. I mean, it's worse than I thought, and I want to get to that today when we have uh, Congressman Steve King on the show. But – you know, at least there, there's some good news going on. Uh, Chip Roy, our buddy, dear friend of mine, the best person you could ever elect to Congress, won his primary, won the nomination in Texas District 21 in South South Texas. Um, he hopefully, God willing, should be a congressman. We will launch a revolution from his office. That is really, really solid stuff. Um, but you know, going back to last episode. I just want to elaborate on some points before uh, Steve King calls in to to discuss this further. And again, you know, Steve King, along with actually Bill Huizenga, I don't know him well. He's a congressman from Michigan. Not really such a conservative guy, but, you know, I have to assume good intentions. Those were the only two members of Congress who voted against the jailbreak bill, this so-called First Step Act um, on Tuesday. You got that. Only two members of Congress had the guts once the president was lied to and supported something that violated every principle he ever espoused. Only two members voted against something that is to the left of Willie of the Willie Horton Dukakis agenda. That is how broken the conservative movement is. So I just want to elaborate on some of the points. And and by the way, a lot of this is in my Twitter feed, very active this week at RM Conservative. You can go back and See what I've written. Also, always, if you can't find me, I mean, look, I, I don't know why we keep changing the interface on our website at Conservative Review, but if you ever have trouble, just Google Conservative Review Daniel Horowitz, and you'll see um, once you click on my name, you could go back into my archives, and, and you could see we have a ton of stuff out this week. Um, obviously, my colleagues, Chris Pandelfo, Robino, Jordan Schachtel, others, but if you if you ever missed an article of mine, that's how you find it. I know a lot of people have trouble finding finding them sometimes. Sometimes I link them in show notes. But we have a lot of good articles up illustrating these points. And you know, just real briefly, you know, I was telling you guys about my hometown, Baltimore, Baltimore County, where there's an epidemic of juveniles that are violent as anything. They're particularly engaging in burglary and car theft and just terrorizing a lot of nice suburban areas. And it's all because of the very jailbreak movement 
that only two people voted against, that has engulfed the right and the left on a national level. Baltimore's crime agenda has now been exported and has gone national thanks to the alliance between the Kochs and Soros. So what happens is I, I noted that you know there, there's people that have five felonies out and it's catch and release. The cops catch them and they continue to wreak havoc. Guess what? Minutes after I uh, recorded Tuesday's podcast in my own backyard, and, and this should be national news, and I'm very disappointed that Trump didn't highlight this. Very sad story. It's in the other side of the county where I live. It's in Baltimore County, um, Perry Hall, which is, again, a really nice area. This is in a cul-de-sac. Um, you know, not used to seeing things like this. Amy Caprio, I believe a four-year veteran of the Baltimore County Police, she was killed by a 16-year-old burglar driving a getaway car for three punks who were still in the in the home burglarizing the place. She was called on the scene of the crime after someone reported a burglary, and she ordered the kid to step out, and he gunned the engine. And I, I believe she fired a shot. And she was run over and she died at St. Joseph's Hospital. Now, first of all, just before the main point here, it's important to note we don't have the exact details. And, and even with the details, there's no way of knowing for sure. But it, sound, it sounds from the story that she wasn't blindsided. She wasn't just ambushed and run over. She saw it. She had her gun drawn, asked him to stop. I was thinking, you know, they said she was very athletic, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to judge here. I'm just trying to retrace what I think might have happened. Um, you know, she couldn't, you know, I don't know, get out of the way in time or something. And I'm, I'm, I'm really wondering because I know I speak to Baltimore County um, cops, SWAT officers, and they work very closely with the Baltimore City cops who dealt with Freddie Gray. And I really wonder. I don't, I can't prove this, but I really wonder. If she seeing that it was you know a teenager so badly didn't want to use lethal force was so scared to do that that waited till the last minute to fire the shot and then you know because of that couldn't get out of the way in time and was run over. Um, I really wonder that. So there, there's a the war on police is one problem here, but more broadly, it turns out this punk. What was his deal? He was under house arrest as a juvenile in the juvenile system, and he had been arrested four times for car theft and burglary in five months. But he was under house arrest. And he actually was accused of stealing a car while in one of these juvenile programs for Montgomery County, another county in Maryland, very liberal county, um, just passed uh, sanctuary city laws, funding for uh, criminal aliens to hire lawyers. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, there, there, there it is. So now that he finally killed a cop, obviously they're treating him like an adult. No bail. The judge said, um, you know, this kid has been a one, one, uh, one man cr- crime wave for six months. There's no way I'm letting him out. But you know, most of the time, it doesn't start with murder. And by the way, there were three other accomplices who also had track records. Now it's hard to find out their exact records because they're sealed. Because they're juveniles. 
Let me tell you something. You guys know this. Very few people know what's in this First Step Act that is now moving on to the Senate. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you. This bill will allow thousands of people to serve out a third of their sentence in home confinement that's very ambiguously defined. That's the same circumstance with this guy. He had an ankle bracelet. And he went out and committed more crimes. That's what's coming to your community thanks to every single Republican, including so many friends of mine, except for Steve King and Bill Huizenga. Every single Republican. And let me tell you something. Imagine an amnesty bill passing in the House of Representatives by a margin of 235 to 2 among the House Republicans. Imagine it then going to the Senate, which is even more liberal. What do you think is going to happen? Well, that's what's happening here. They're going to tack onto it the Lee Durbin sentencing bill, which goes a step further and has blatant jailbreak and also has um, all these leniencies on sealing and expunging juvenile records. So basically when you have these animals, and yes, they're animals – doing all sorts of things when they're 16 and 17, the minute they turn 18, that gets expunged, and they start anew. And you know, first-time offenses is so hard to land anything. This is what our movement has become. But let me transition, and I think I'll elaborate on this after you know, Steve comes on the show, but, and this is my next article, and we'll, we'll link to it in show notes. Where is the social conservative pushback against the rainbow jihad and judicial immorality? So remember I made the point yesterday. I said, look, I could forgive these people if they take a bad position. All these social conservative so-called pro-family groups saying, oh, God wants us to be nice to criminals if they were going gangbusters against the rainbow jihad. They're nowhere to be seen, and we're going to talk about that with Steve King. Steve King was pushing in the defense authorization bill to fight back against a lot of the social engineering in the military, and he has confirmed none of them have supported him. But there is a crisis going on in the courts that is unimaginable. Just over the last 24 hours, again, a judge in Virginia ruled that transgenderism is codified in the 14th Amendment of 1867 – and Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972. And therefore, every school district must allow men and female bathrooms, and vice versa. No one bats an eyelash. None of these organizations that were spending all week promoting jailbreak, none of them put out a press release. None of them are calling for judicial reform like I am and backing my agenda. None of them. Meanwhile, at the same time, courts are continuing to grant abortion chain migration rights for people to come here and demand access to abortion from Mexico. Now there's a whole trend, and I wrote about this, tons of cases where courts, both immigration judges and Article Three judges, granting asylum to all the people from Latin America that say, oh, I'm transgender, I feel I'll be persecuted. Not only have we become a transgender abortion wasteland, we are becoming the world's dumping ground chain migration magnet for cultural Marxism. And yet, there's no pushback. And then to cap it off, as I was writing this story yesterday, 
Judge Naomi Reich Buchenwald from the Southern District of New York issues an edict and says, Trump cannot block any account from following him on Twitter. And I was like, we're done. And meanwhile, there's no pushback. You know, other people are saying how absurd it is, but what are you going to do about it? Are you supporting my judicial reform agenda? Are you going to inform the president of this? No. Nothing. I'll talk about that later. But finally, before we bring on the congressman, I made one other major point on Tuesday, and that is Donald Trump is doing a lot of good things, even though he wasn't you know, really a Christian conservative most of his life, doesn't really live our values. But look, you know, he, he did go after some funding for, for, for abortions this week, but he's not going to be more religious than the religious groups. He badly wants to be a champion for conservatives and what we want to do, but you know what's interesting? He's only going to do what we ask from him. And if social conservative groups like Family Research Council come up to him, and, and he's close with them now because he just appointed um, Tony Perkins to, to a position, if, if they're going to say, here's what social conservatism means. It means um, being nice to criminals. Well, you know what? That's what he's going to do. But what if, as a movement, we said, Mr. President, the courts are saying you're not commander-in-chief? They're denuding you of your right to determine who comes into the military and says that people that have a 41% suicide rate, attempted suicide rate, have to be allowed into the military? Do you understand, Mr. President, that courts, especially the lower courts, have no jurisdiction other than what Congress gives it? We demand that you support jurisdiction-stripping legislation. Louis Gohmert has it on immigration. Other things, I think Trump would give it to us. We don't ask for it because the movement is more broken than Trump, who was never a conservative his whole life. Nowhere to be seen pushing this. And now they say he can't even control his own Twitter feed. We have a judicial crisis of unimaginable proportions. But let me tell you this. Here's my challenge to every one of you who consider yourself a pro-life, pro-family group in Washington. Will you fight for traditional values? Will you fight for judicial reform? Will you fight against the rainbow jihad in the military, in our agencies, in our society, with the same alacrity, with the same intrepidity, with the same effectiveness that you employed this week to get conservatives on board for jailbreak legislation? You guys are such a juggernaut that, by golly, even all my friends felt pressure to vote for it. So certainly you would have the power to get the ball rolling on judicial reform, on barring use of funds in the military for transgenderism. Right? I know a lot of your phony religious groups are pro-amnesty, but are you pro Transgender amnesty, pro-abortion chain migration? Let me tell you something. If religious political activism in Washington has now been relegated exclusively to fighting for more Islamic refugees, open borders, and soft on crime initiatives, because that's what God and Jesus want, then let me tell you something. There's no need for their existence because we already have George Soros doing that. On that note... (laughs) Before I blow a gasket again, like I did 
on Tuesday, let me bring on the very mild-mannered congressman from Iowa. And as we noted before, Congressman Steve King was the only Republican, along with one other colleague, Bill Huizanga from Michigan, to vote against this Willie Horton jailbreak bill. All right, Steve, you're on the line. Well, yes, I am. I'm here to be with you, Daniel. Okay. I mean, talk me off the ledge here. I'm trying to figure this out. Uh, Imagine if over a series of a couple of years without noticing it, all of your friends and colleagues you worked with start supporting gun control and Hamas. And you're like, what? I, I never got the memo. Um, every, uh, every one of my colleagues I'm working with all of a sudden is into what, when I was growing up, was a bedrock Republican value or anti-Republican value. Um, this notion of jailbreak that we're being too tough on criminals. How is it that you are one of only two people willing to vote against a bill that will retroactively and arbitrarily reduce sentencing uh, up to, you know, pretty much for a 10-year sentence, they can now serve five years and seven months, a five-year sentence, two years and two months by my calculation. What is going on here? You know, I wonder, I just, I look around among among Republicans only because Democrats are seem to be pro-criminal, anti-work and pro-illegal immigration. Um, but on the Republican side of this, I wonder, Daniel, am I the only one, uh, only one of a couple of us that are actual victims of crime that have had to look this monster in the eye and understand uh, how our system works and what it actually means to the victims? I mean, I, this rolled out maybe two years ago, maybe three years ago. And I remember, uh, let's see, Mike Lee came over from the Senate. Raul Labrador spoke in favor of Rand Paul did. They stacked this thing up to present it to a a large group of us at the Republican Study Committee, and uh, people sat around there and nodded their heads in approval, and and they and they said we can save all this money and we can cut recidivism down, and and so I was the only dissenter there, and so I, I asked them, I said, what about the crime victims? What is your? They say we've studied this thoroughly, and what we delivered you is all fact, and you can be confident. And I said, what about the study that calculates the damage to victims because of the recidivism? that's certain to be. And they say, well, we're reducing recidivism. <laughs> As you turn people out of jail, they're going to commit crimes. If they're in jail, it's a lot harder to commit crimes. So there will be victims. How many of them? What's your calculation? How many murders? How many rapes? How many assaults? And uh, how many drug crimes are out there? And they say, well, yeah, we've studied that, and we'll get back to you. And I said, can you name a study? They couldn't name a study. So I did. And I pointed out a Cato study from 1995. Uh, that I happen to remember. I mean, it's 20 years old at the time. And it came across my desk when I was sitting in my construction office, and I read that study. And it it really boiled down to this. At that time, it took $18,000 a year to incarcerate a typical criminal. And uh, they turn a typical criminal out on the loose. Their calculation was that criminal on the loose would commit $444,000 worth of crimes. Now, who pays for those crimes? The individual crime victims in great, huge, whopping chunks of their lives or their fortune, or both. And so they had no calculation for that. And my calculation was, well, if you divide $18,000 into $444,000, you get the factor of the return on the investment of locking up criminals. And that's the first equation that we ought to have 
and it's not even in their equation with this jailbreak bill. It's actually amazing. Um, Every year, I don't know if they did it this year, but in April during National Crime Victims' Rights Week, maybe they just abolished it, uh, but I know they had it last year. The Senate passed a resolution and included in the whereas, you know, the findings, um, a study from Jeffrey Sedgwick, a former director of the Bureau of Justice Statistics in the Washington Post in 2008, that the the most conservative estimate of the cost of violent and property crimes is $17 billion a year. And, you know, we obviously uh, helped so- solve that to a large degree with the two decades long decline in crime precisely because we got tough on sentencing. We're reversing it now. Um, what What's disturbing me, and I, I want to kind of tie this into your work on the NDAA and some other projects on civilization issues, whether it's immigration, whether it's um, Y and X chromosomes, uh, the dangerous transgender agenda in the military – I'm I'm very confused here. There's a lot of um, family pro-family groups in Washington that take up a lot of real estate. Um, they certainly have uh, bigger staffs than I do, and you know they they fundraise a lot. And what I'm seeing a trend is that whenever you have a bill, and you had I, I write about it yesterday, the NDAA. You have two amendments dealing with the transgender agenda, um, religious liberty for defense contractors. For some reason, I'm only seeing these pro-family groups, and you know this is endemic of of really you know Protestant groups, Catholics, Jewish groups. All of them seem to be getting into Islamic refugees, open borders, now um, soft on crime, maybe AIDS in Africa. But somehow, when it comes to fight the rainbow jihad, they're not really there. I mean, are they a help to your initiatives? Well, boy, that's a good question. Um... No, I read your article, Daniel. In fact, I tweeted it out this morning, not even thinking about us having this conversation. It just it lit me up because I thought it was spot on. Um, we used to fight this thing on every front, and some of these things are so utterly ridiculous if you just dial ourselves back in our civilization 10 years or 20 years. that um, so, so where are they now, and why wouldn't they fight everything? But they just seem to have um, kind of collapsed on a lot of these social agenda issues. And I know that when the gay marriage thing came through the Supreme Court, the Obergefell, we didn't have hardly any pushback. And uh, I went over to the Supreme Court to give a speech and wrote some op-eds and did those things because uh, I thought that it would be a spontaneous pushback. And it was not. You had you had to work it. And so um, on, on these on these social agenda, then when Obergefell came down, I thought I thought the White House would be surrounded with families with pitchforks. I thought that'd be the case for the Supreme Court. But the White House was lit up in rainbow colors. And one name surfaced out of the whole nation uh, that stood her ground for a while. And that was Kim Davis down in Kentucky. And hats off to her and God bless her. But there should have been tens of thousands that said there is nothing in the Constitution that compels same-sex marriage. It was beyond the pale for anybody that ratified the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. And how you ever devise that out of the emanations and penumbras, it's a, it's a manufacture. But yet, the Supreme Court concluded society was ready for it. And I guess maybe in a way they were because they uh, they didn't push back. And so so here we have all these other radical things. Uh, sex re- sexual reassignment surgery in our military. We have corporal cleaner companies now, well, we should have, actually, if we're going to have them, might as well put them all in the same company and see how they perform. Then at least we'd have some analytical data. But that's just, it's unbelievable. 
that we would borrow money from China to, to fund our deficit and use that for sex change operations in our military. Meanwhile, uh, if you remember, uh, the, um, the previous the Secretary of Defense said that children are too many children, like 30% of our children are obese. And so it's a national security issue because they can't meet the physical and we can't meet the requirements to recruit them into the military. So Michelle Obama put all of our school kids on a diet and uh, got the Department of Defense to defend the, to defend the idea. It is, this is a bizarre world. And I don't know how we can run a country when we think like this. You surely couldn't run a company if you think like this. You know, it's funny, actually. I know you have got to run soon because you're going to vote on a series of dozens and dozens of amendments to the defense authorization bill. And I'm really confused. To me, I always thought you have an authorization bill and an appropriation bill. And the reason is first you have an authorization bill where you discuss what is the purpose of a military? What's the threat assessment? Why are we in certain theaters? Why are we not in certain theaters? What is our mission? And then also just structurally the problems with the military. And then when you get to the probes bill, it's about money. But somehow even the authorization bill becomes all about money and procurement and nothing about the policies surrounding the military. I'm looking at all these amendments, and, and none of them address these problems. We have a judge that literally said Donald Trump is not the commander-in-chief anymore. Um, I am the commander-in-chief. There are actually three district judges, and therefore you must um, continue bringing in uh, people that – I guess castrate themselves or they're going to do it or think about doing it into the military and there's nothing you can do about it. And I'm not seeing any pushback. I mean, I just, um, you know, I know you brought me in uh, and I'm very thankful for this almost a year and a half ago at the beginning of the administration to speak to your Wednesday group of, you know, a few dozen members mm -hmm. about judicial tyranny. And it's pretty funny what has happened since then. I'm still not seeing any pushback. I, no, and, I, I don't and get Daniel, it. You you delivered a really powerful and impactful presentation that morning. And I, I think what happens is everybody around that table was was motivated by it. But the other part of it is that we are under the gun with so many issues, so many priorities. It's just, uh, you know, we're, we get our we get so busy doing that which is urgent that we can't get time to mobilize to do sometimes that which is important. And even me sitting there on the Judiciary Committee and one of the senior members uh, what do I do about these judges? I'd like to drag them before the Judiciary Committee. I'd like to ask them, can you give me one good reason why we shouldn't impeach you if you think you're the President of the United States? Judge Watson comes to mind on that rock pile in the, out in the Pacific that happens to be boiling over right now, by the way. And there is one in Washington and another one, what, in New York? The, the idea that, this, that Congress granted the authority to the President of the United States to keep America safe and to decide who can come into America and who must go. Uh, we specifically delivered that statutory authority to the President of the United States, and these three judges decided that they're going to intervene and they're going to decide. And they and they also, they're deciding cases that are supposed to be decided on, actually, if you accept Marbury, Marbury versus Madison, and I don't, but if you do, they're trying to decide, they need to be deciding it on what the Constitution says and what it was understood to mean at the time of ratification and whether the relevant statutes are consistent and conform to the structure of the Constitution itself. And instead, they're going to be deciding cases on, well, we heard President Trump say something during the campaign that we determined was racist, therefore, he's racially motivated, therefore, that's the fruit of the poisonous tree, and it invalidates the safety of the American people as judged by the President of the United States. Isn't that the sum total of their conclusion on this? 
No, exactly. And and yesterday it it I it reached a crescendo, but it's still not critical mass that conservatives are up in arms. Um, Judge Naomi Bookwald in New York, by the way, the same ju- uh, individual who made fun out of uh, Sarah Palin accused her of uh, using her son, you know, her Down syndrome son for to her political advantage. Um, she basically took away his Twitter account. He can't block people on Twitter. I mean, the, the insanity of this. And then, as I noted in that article, judges are now making America a chain migration factory for abortions and transgenderism. All these transgender asylees coming over. And and again, what bothers me is this. President Trump for most of his life was not exactly a conservative or religious Christian. But nonetheless, he's shown a willingness to to actually deliver for conservatives. He understands that uh, evangelicals were a big part of what got him elected. And he's like, hey, what do you guys want? And they come and say, all right, we want jailbreak. So, you know, he's like, all right, well, so he blends his support to this bill, and it's such a juggernaut, the president's support, that everyone supports it. So I'm thinking, where is the clamor? Um, Louis Gomert has a bill, H.R. 5648, to strip the lower courts of jurisdiction over all litigation uh, uh, for a claim of, of uh, you know, some sort of right to come to the country, to remain in the country. Where is the clamor to get the president behind that, to get the president behind some of your immigration bills? I'm not understanding this, why the connection's not being made to the president's agenda. Well, I would think on, on this uh, jailbreak bill, that was an agenda of Jared Kushner's from before the election, well before the election. And uh, when the president brought him in as one of his uh, special advisors, I guess would be the name for that, and uh, they began to push this, it had the support of the Koch brothers, but on the other side of the wing, it had the support of George Soros. So I guess they see that as that is the new definition for bipartisanship, George Soros and the Koch brothers. And most of the time, I agree with the Koch brothers, but on this one, I don't know what their motive is or why they put that kind of effort and money into it. Um, and and the, the the jailbreak thing, I, if I could just dial back to that, there's a concept that I think it's important, Daniel, that your listeners hear. And, and that is, for me, this, this came, it took shape in my mind after I had, uh, I'll say, uh, altogether hundreds of thousands of dollars of my heavy equipment destroyed by vandals. And we caught them. And uh, we actually caught them with the help of some of my neighbors and a little bit of the work that I did. But we caught them. And I took it as my responsibility to make sure that justice was served and cooperate and support everything that had to do with law enforcement and prosecution. Now, it's, of course, it's a very long story, but to boil it down, it was this. Uh, I'm sitting in the courtroom when they brought the charges against the first one of these two perpetrators. And uh, so uh, as I sit there, I see, of course, prosecution sitting over at this table. The defense is sitting over at this table with the defendant. I'm sitting as an, in the audience. And... Uh, the bailiff announced the case. Uh, the judge came in and the bailiff announced the case in the case of the state versus Jason Martin Powell, which was one of the perpetrators. And when that washed over me, it just kind of lit me up and it, it illuminated this. And I realized I'm really not in this equation. The crime has been committed against the state, not against me, the victim of this crime. And so I began to process that as we went through. And what I what I came to this conclusion is, and I know it's true, is that our criminal justice system is rooted in old English common law or old English law. And back in that era, if you committed a crime, everything belonged to the king. The king owned the deer in Sherwood Forest. The king owned the serfs and his subjects. The king owned everything. So 
if you stole something or if you killed one of the king's deer, if you stole the king, you killed the king's deer. You kill his serf, you killed the king's serf. The crime is against the crown. And so criminal justice grew from that. And so what it amounted to is when, when the king believed he'd received justice, no one else had any right to complain because it all belonged to the king. And we came here to the United States where we have property rights and we have personal rights and we have individual God-given right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But the crime committed against individuals is still considered a crime against the state. And when the state get, gets justice, the victim has nothing to say about it. And so if the state concludes that $18,000 a year is a good investment to lock people up for a while, and then you've got the jailbreak bill that in just a little over half the time they serve, they can be turned loose. And that, that undercuts the decisions made by generally more liberal judges than I would like. But it, 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 so I did this equation through that Cato study that I mentioned earlier in this interview. If, if, they, if the government, if the state is going to intervene and claim that they are the ones that determine what justice is between the crime victim and the perpetrator, then if they were held accountable to help make the victim whole, there would be a different equation when it came to jailbreak. So let's just say, for example, if I know that there was a study in 1992 that equated the value of a rape at 82,000. Now, I don't know that anybody would submit to rape for 82,000, and they shouldn't. But if, it, if they had, if the government had to, if taxpayers had to write a check for 82,000 to every victim of rape in this country, you can bet we'd lock up more rapists for longer. If, if murder was, say, a million dollars, we'd lock up murderers longer than we do. There would be more money invested in law enforcement and crime prevention if we had to protect the victims. And this that core philosophy is something that keeps me from supporting jailbreak. You know, and by the way, what was so funny is that they were in such a rush to vote on this, voted on it before a CBO score, um, it, when the whole pitch was about saving money. And, um, you know, I mean, you sit on the Judiciary Committee, there's been immigration bills, good immigration bills that have languished for years. This thing gets in there after two weeks, uh, gets a floor vote. The day after the Justice Department, U.S. Sentencing Commission came out with an updated version of their study of a whole bunch of prisoners on a state level that were let go from 2005-2009, of state offenders reoffended within five years. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I'll have to send that to you. It came out a day after um, you know, hopefully Tom Cotton could use that to blow it up in the Senate. I know you got to go soon. Just wanted a quick update from you. What is going on in the month of June with immigration, the discharge petition? Where where do things stand, and what's your play? How, how do immigration patriots fight back? Well, Daniel, I'm uh, as soon as we we end this interview, I will be going up to a two hour conference with Republicans on uh, on immigration, and we're going to try to hammer this out, but. We've got those four bills that are put together in this Queen of the Hill proposal, which I don't know if it's ever been used before. And uh, I sent out a tweet last night at my leader that said, uh, if we are determined to bring four bills to the floor on immigration, could one of them, what could one, could one of them be without amnesty? But every one of them <laughs> has got at least one component of amnesty. And is that asking too much? Just let me vote on an immigration bill that doesn't give amnesty to lead. But their their minds are so... Uh, you know, I remember in uh, 2011, after that big class of 2010 came in, I was sitting in a press conference in a group of conservatives, mostly from that class. And uh, they were pontificating about how they could write legislation that would essentially fool Barack Obama into signing it, and somehow they'd get him to enforce immigration law. I said, are you guys daft? 
Haven't you watched? Don't you know that Barack Obama violates the Constitution at will? And you really think you can slip something by him that he will sign and then follow through and enforce it the way you want? And uh, don't you remember what happened in 1986 when Ronald Reagan took the promise that if he just signed the Amnesty Act, he would get enforcement thereafter and there'd never be another amnesty bill since then? And since then, there's actually been six other smaller ones that didn't make the news. And I remember when I said that, Mick Mulvaney looked up at me and he said, were you here in 1986? Which was one of his ways of saying, well, you must just be an old dog here and we have a new way and we're smarter. Yep. But Daniel, I, I wrote a letter to Carl Rove and President Bush on January 2nd, 2004, which was on the eve of George W. Bush's amnesty speech when he began to run this comprehensive immigration reform. I pleaded with him not to do this. I defined what happened in 86. I told them you cannot redefine amnesty. The public knows what amnesty is. And I read that just a couple of days ago again. It was in my electronics. And all of those words hold up exactly the same today. It hasn't changed from 1986 to 2004 to 2013 when we had a big fight, 2007 and a big fight, 2013 big fight. And today it's all the same argument. People want to lead with amnesty and accept the promise that there will be law enforcement. And that will never happen because the people that are making the deal only want amnesty. They don't. And, and by the way, we have about 20 or 25, I'll call them liberal Republicans, that go make a deal with the Democrats. And then that, they're dragging the majority off with them and forcing some of this. And so they have they can get every Democrat to sign on because, first of all, Democrats believe in amnesty and open borders and they don't like to enforce against crime. But on top of that, um, they just want to mess up what Republicans are doing. So those 20 or 25 Republicans teaming up with with the Democrats can upset the whole apple cart. And yet the Freedom Caucus, which I agree with most of the time, but not this time, um, they don't have anybody to build a coalition with to get to 218 votes, a majority in the House of Representatives. So they have to take down a rule or a bill to try to get some leverage to try to balance this thing back the other way. And what was so so where we sat here is that when the president served up DACA amnesty as a bargaining chip to get a wall and some some immigration enforcement legislation, then when he served that up, what he did was. He took two of his mandates that he'd been elected for, build a wall and DACA, pushed them out in the middle of the table and bargained them against each other. And I don't think he wrote about that in the art of the deal, because I don't think there's much art to that kind of deal. That was taking your mandates and sacrificing them. I want the rule of law back. I've talked to the president about this. And um, he essentially says, I've got to sell this to 500 people, meaning the House and the Senate, and uh, you don't have enough support for your position. Uh, well, okay, I'm right. I'm going to stand my ground, and I'll die on the hill alone if I have to. Wow. Well, well, well. There you have it. And indeed, the number of UACs crossing has increased 370 percent since last summer when he he put exactly when he put that out. Um, I know you got to go. Promise is the last thing. Um, real quick, I want to get your comment on the drug crisis. It, it boggles the mind that these very same members who sit on ENC and Commerce Committee that have marked up 59 pieces of legislation to deal with the opioid crisis, they are supporting the, the, the particularly the teenage amnesty, which was the impetus for the 2013 to 2015 surge that brought in a record number of drugs, 750% increase in, in fentanyl seizures at the border just this year. 
what am I missing? Why is nobody connecting the two? They just do not, they have not absorbed the facts on this. Uh, they're just, they're just reading off of whatever they're picking up from maybe some other members of the lobby. But yeah, we have 64,000 dead Americans because of drug overdose, two thirds of them illegal drugs, about one third prescription drugs. And uh, then the, the, the drug abuse we have, the at least, let's say, I asked the drug enforcement, the director of drug enforcement agency under oath here a couple of weeks ago and, and testimony before the Judiciary Committee, what's the value of all the illegal drugs sold on the streets in America? And he didn't know. What's the value of the illegal drugs coming into America? He didn't know. And so how much in remittances that's being sent back south is laundered drug money? Didn't know that either. And so, and then I asked him, what percentage of the illegal drugs consumed in America come from or through Mexico? He didn't give me that answer either. And uh, so I posed one up to him, which I had actually received from his own agency a few years ago. And I said, what I'm told by your agency is that 80 to 90% of the illegal drugs consumed in America come from or through Mexico. Do you agree or disagree? And he said, I think that's generally true. So see how hard it is? I mean, if you're, a, if you're a member that's not been digging into this, paying attention, doing the research, and staying up nights like you do, Daniel, um, you can sit in a hearing like that. You don't get anything out of that exchange that I've just described because your ear's not even tuned to that number 80 to 90 percent that I pulled out of him. Nothing else was information. And, and it's, it's, that's, I'm frustrated with the executive branch. Uh, I thought that that would all end when we when the Obama administration ended, but it didn't. We still have an executive branch that just will not give information, and uh, you see that fight going on with the investigation into the Hillary emails and the and the FISA courts and all of this mess that we have to go back and dig through after these years. It is we have to get to the truth on the bottom of this. We should get. I don't think there's anything in there that's such a national security issue. That we shouldn't pull it out and play those cards face up and let the American public decide who did what when. But it's um, to get that information is just um, it's, it's a huge chore to do so, Daniel. So I better jump up there and get into that immigration debate with my <laughs> colleagues. I can't let them get ahead of me. No, keep, keep us updated. And thanks so much for coming on and join us again. You bet. I sure will. Thank you, Daniel. God bless. Well, that was Congressman Steve you King too. from Bye. Iowa. Steve literally is the one and only. I mean, there was one other, one other congressman, Bill Huizenga from Michigan. I, I don't know what his story was. I never heard him speak out against this. But we're just the last man standing. Me on the outside, him on the inside. And, and by the way, I want to just say a couple things about him. You know, he, he talks very quickly. He was in a rush. There's a lot of information to process there. But notice you heard in his voice, and he mentioned this a couple times. A theme I've been hitting on the past couple months in my whole thesis on the need for citizens' task forces. And I told you there's a problem that even the few dozen members that are intuitively with us and share our values and they kind of want to fight, they just don't have the time. And normally you have a party apparatus. You have a movement. You have your organizations that are feeding you with the information that you know. So, so you just take that and you and you you kind of swim along upstream, downstream with them. Here, you have to swim upstream, and there's no one providing that motor. You got to do it alone. They just can't do it. It's not so much a lot of them don't want to do it. It just it's not going to happen. 
Even if you elect good people, it's not going to happen. This is the problem. It's worse than you think it is. You know, even Steve, I'll call him on a number of issues sometimes. He's like, yeah, I agree. I, I kind of sense it's true, but I just don't have time to deal with it. I don't blame him. I wouldn't have time either. You know, you can only fight on so many things at once. But that's the problem. This is what groups like Family Research Council should be dealing with. They should be backing Steve King on his civilization social fights. But instead, you know, they're out to lunch. Not just out to lunch. I wish they were out to lunch. We'd be better off if they're out to lunch. They're downright promoting the Soros agenda. I mean, this this is why, look, I'm the only one trying to make the connection with Hezbollah and Iran and Latin America tied into the drug uh, cartels, which ties it, which is the drug crisis, which is the immigration crisis, which is the MS-13 crisis. And, and this ties back into domestic criminal justice. At a time when we need to give the death penalty to these fentanyl bastards, they, they want to let them out. And this bill is only going to get worse. And again, gets back to what we started on before the congressman came on at the beginning of the show. You know, I watched that roundtable in Long Island where the president was talking. It, it, was, it was beautiful. He was so on message about crime, gangs, and I was thinking everything you say is refuted by the bill you just supported. Imagine if we had a movement rather than encouraging the president to support his son-in-law's nonsense actually came to him with our agenda and said, hey, Mr. President, are you aware of the fact that you don't have to let these guys in? You could process them in the Mexico City Embassy. Are you aware of the fact that the courts weren't created by God, Congress has jurisdiction over it, and Louis Gohmert has a bill to take away that jurisdiction? Are you aware of the statistics on the drug crisis and where is this coming from? I mean, he's that close. He's really close to where we are. But before we could kind of get it, 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 it goes in reverse. And again, this is all because we have a broken conservative movement. That is why you have a broken Republican Party. And that is why even the good members we elect tend to drift. So this is a theme we're going to be focusing on a lot, a lot more. We're, we're going to focus this on the policy level. We're going to bring people on running for office. I'm going to try to get Chip Roy on. He thankfully won his runoff, you know, and, and just try to deal with this. Like, hey, hey, Chip, how do we bridge this divide? Hopefully you're going to become a member. How do we keep your attention focused? How do we help you? How do you help us? How do we build this movement out of your office? I don't know. I'm seeking answers. I'm seeking answers. But you got to recognize the problem. And, and and that's the thing. It's funny. Steve is is all he he was actually he actually seemed pretty down. I know he's very busy today. Um, he's always in a really good mood. I once asked him why he's so happy. Every time I see him, he has a smile on his face. He's a real happy w- warrior. Um, you know, it takes someone like that to be working at this for so many years, but. Um, he really, really cares. He's also very smart. He has a lot of good things to say. You know, the media often focuses on a couple of gaffes or whatever, and oh, he's crazy. He's really a very thoughtful person, um, and I really want to have him on the show a lot. Let me know your comments 
about this interview, who you want me to have on, who you want to hear from, what issue you want addressed. Um, But one thing I can tell you I can address, it's summertime, and if you have not just liberals in your home regulating the water in your toilet and your shower heads, but you have other form of parasites, you got mosquitoes, you got bugs in your home, getting in your food, biting you up when you sleep, you got to get Dynatrap's indoor fly light. I'm telling you this stuff works. I'm just so excited about it. Um, you know, now now I don't have to hear from the kids and my wife, man, there's mosquitoes everywhere. You know, you got to go kill it. There's no way you can kill it. Just like there's no way to flush out the deep state and the courts under the current paradigm. You need a force multiplier. You need a new tool. And at least when it comes to bugs, Dynatrap Flylight is exactly what you need. It attracts the bugs through a nice nightlight. Um, doesn't make noise when you're sleeping. You just change the filter once every 30 days, and that's it. 30 days worth of bugs are on that, and they're not in your food or on your body. Um, go to Dynatrap.com, D-Y-N-A-T-R-A-P.com. Enter promo code Daniel. Remember that. Promo code Daniel to receive 15% off any of their products. Look, I'm telling you, I wish we could find the Dynatrap of politics. I'm still waiting for that. What is that force multiplier? Maybe it doesn't exist, but I promise you as long as I'm behind this microphone, as long as I have a platform where at least someone's going to listen to me, although after this week I'm going to lose a lot of friends, I will be seeking solutions in addition to speaking the truth about the severity of our problems. More later on this. Thank you all for all listening. God bless. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 